A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. On this edition of Confessions of a Marketer, we're all about the A-Team. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome to the final episode of the first season of Confessions of a Marketer. On episode 28, I've got Whitney Johnson in for a discussion about her new book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. We'll get to Whitney in a moment. First, let's look back on the first season, 28 episodes of Confessions of a Marketer. I started this podcast because I love talking to people, people I know, people I want to know, and people I don't know. From the first episode, when I talked with Tony Temple about throwing out the old B2B marketing rule book, to discussions about PR, tone of voice, cause marketing, life inside a startup, design, GDPR, and on through to today's chat with Whitney, I'm left with this thought. There are a lot of smart people in the world of marketing, and I've barely scratched the surface. Next season, which I hope to start in September, will continue on the themes I've discussed this year. We hope to have Jacques back to talk about the after effects of GDPR. We have some great ideas for discussions about personas, creatives, getting the most out of your talent, and so much more. Okay, on to Whitney Johnson and her new book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths, and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. Whitney is all about disruption, and we marketers love that word. If you're like me, you've hired a lot of people over the years, so building an A-Team is what you aim for. But how do you do it? Whitney's book is a great guide, and I had a fun discussion with her, so let's get to it. Whitney Johnson, it's wonderful to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So the A-Team in this case is not a TV show, but the kind of people we want to surround ourselves with, right? That's right. Although you can watch the TV show, there is some element of, for those who have watched the A-Team, you know that, that you know, they're, they're, they're a motley crew, but, but I think that's part of what you're looking for is a group of people who are, are very different, um, but they can come together and build something wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting and drive around in a van, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in, in your book, you describe the S-shaped learning curve. We've all seen things like this, going from discomfort and excitement to confidence and maybe even dullness. How can you determine where someone is on that learning curve and how do you approach the different levels? 
Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll give a little bit of background just because I think Mm -hmm. it will will help your listeners. So the S curve of learning, it's exactly what it sounds like is is shaped in an S. And it was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962 to help you figure out or help us figure out how quickly an innovation or a virus or something might be adopted. And um, at the base of the S, you know, growth is going to be very, very slow and it will look like nothing is happening. And then you move into the knee of that S or the steep part of the curve and things are happening really fast in a very short period of time. Then you move to the top and again, it looks like nothing's happening. And we use this learning curve in our investing to help us figure out how quickly innovations would be adopted. But the big aha that I had as we were doing the investing is that this not only applied to products, but it also applied to people and it could help us understand people in particular how we learn. And so when you think about every time you start something new, whether it's a new project or a new role, a new marketing initiative. Um, At the base of the S, it will probably look like things are really slow. That's what the S curve math tells you. And so it will feel like a slog, not much is happening. Um, And for people in particular, you're going to be inexperienced and feel like you don't really quite know what you're doing. There's this jumble of puzzle pieces and you don't know how to how they go together. What's important to know about that is because you know that it is going to be so it helps you avoid discouragement and not to think, oh, what am I doing? This doesn't make sense. It's not working. It's like, no, it's just that you're at the base of the yes. And then after you put in the effort, and typically when it comes to an individual on a project or a role, it's going to take about six months, you're going to move into the sweet spot of that S, that steep part, the sleek part where lots is lots of happening, you feel increasingly competent with that comes confident. And this is really the sweet spot for you where things are, they're easy, but not too easy. And they're hard, but not too hard. And then you get to the top of the S and that's the part again where you're working hard and it looks like not much is happening only this time it's not an experience but in fact it's mastery and you're very very good at what you're doing but because you're no longer learning and actually getting the dopamine hit that comes with learning <laughs> you start to you start to get bored yeah. and so even though you're really good at it you're bored and so what looks like this wonderful plateau this wonderful mountain peak and you can stay there for a while survey all that you've accomplished you can only stay for there for a time before that plateau becomes a precipice and so then you you start at the bottom you learn and you get to the top and you leap and then you repeat right lather rinse repeat kind of Exactly. So if you ever talk to a manager who's looking to put a team together, they'll say, you know, I want an A team. And of course, hiring everybody at that mastery level is probably impossible and even impractical. So what's the best way to deal with them all over the learning curve? Yeah, not only is it impossible and impractical, it's inadvisable um, because of what we just talked about. Because once you are truly a master, you're potentially a little bit bored. And and so what we found in our research is you want to have at any given time 70% of your people in the sweet spot where they are going to be able to be innovative because they know enough that you can really throw challenges at them and they'll have to figure it out. And they, they know enough to be confident, but they're not too much that they're bored. And so they can be very innovative on behalf of your team and on behalf of your organization. Um, at any given time, you want to have 15% of your people at the low end who don't know what they're doing. And the reason for that is even though they're inexperienced and they're going to be slow, what happens with people at the low end of the curve is they ask that question, mm-hmm. why do you do it like this? And on your really good days, the why do you do it like this is just kind of pesky, like a three-year-old, like, oh, why do you do it like this? Why, 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 why? On your bad days, you feel actually a bit threatened because they're saying, why do you do it like this? And yet, that inexperience is and that those questions that come 
actually open the door to innovation because they're saying, why couldn't we do it differently? Or why, why don't we think about doing it differently? And so having those 15% that are inexperienced are actually very, very valuable to the team. And then you want 15% of your people at the high end, but no more than that, because they are experts, they do um, represent the status quo, they give you something to bump up against. It's, you know, they say that when an old person dies, it's like a library burning. They are, in fact, a library of knowledge, and so they're important. But the people behind the curve aren't actually the people that are innovating. It's the people at the low end in the sweet spot. And so you want to have that mix of people in order to be able to be optimally set for innovation and and, and certainly for people to be engaged and productive and happy. And, and so not only are you innovating, but you're also a boss that people want to work for because they know that on their watch or your watch, they're going to be learning and and therefore really love coming to work. Do you find that over the course of a career, you encounter different S-curves? So you start as an individual contributor, then maybe you become a manager, a director, and as you kind of go from point to point, there's you know different challenges that you encounter. So how do you kind of move up from one S-curve to the next, starting from scratch, essentially? That's such a great question. Yeah, so if you think about an, an S-curve, it, it's like a fractal, right? The more you go, the more S-curves there are. So there's one big S-curve, which is the arc of your career. Yep. At the very beginning of your career, at the low end, at the very end, you know, you're at the high end. And then there is going to be an S-curve in terms of your domain expertise. Um, probably at the low end, you're going to, you know, at the beginning, you're going to move up and over time. But then there are those different S-curves that are going to last three or four years when you're in different roles or different jobs. And you'll find that people do tend to move around on average every three or four years because it's time for them to try something new, whether they're learning something new in terms of their domain or their subject matter, whether they're giving themselves an opportunity to learn how to manage people, whether they're doing a different configuration of teams and and learning what that might look like or different clients. And so yes, there's one big broad arc in terms of your overall career, there can be one, you know, different arcs in terms of domain expertise. And then there are arcs in terms of your job or role. And then there can be even in terms of projects. It's a bunch of S-curves kind of connected. Correct. Yeah. And what's fun about this is that I, I talk to a lot of people that say they look at this and they see this model or framework and they go, oh, now I get it. Like now I get why every three or four years I had to jump because I was at the top of my curve and it was time to do something new. Mm-hmm. It helps me understand that I wasn't just out of my mind or, or, or being impatient. It was just the natural ebb and flow of learning. And, and again, like I said, that learn, loop and repeat cycle. Yeah. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's vitalant.org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at vitalant.org. You could help save lives. So there's a wonderful chapter in the book on managing the hungry hire. And in this case, you know, you think hungry and you think, well, someone at the beginning of their career, someone who's really young. But you have a great story about John Gooch. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, absolutely. So John Gooch, he's in his mid-50s. He's run his own civil engineering and soil testing business. So he's got, you know, he's got skills. And um, he and his partners were like, you know, I think we're done. And so they sold off all the assets and he went to work for a nonprofit and, you know, jumped to a new learning curve. But he got there and he's like, you know, 
this isn't really for me. Um, I'm not really, and this happens sometimes, sure. right? You know, yeah. not every learning curve is going to be the one true learning curve. Like you're going to start and, and it might be time to jump to a new curve because you don't ever move up. And so he's having a conversation with someone in his network, a fellow by the name of Don Cantori, who's the CEO of Fielder's Choice Enterprises in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they're an excavation firm and they specialize in these really large infrastructure projects. And so they're having the conversation. Cantori's like, yeah, I don't really know of any jobs. But then he thinks about it overnight and he's like, you know what? I think I, I, I think I want to hire him. So he hires John Gooch as this junior estimator. And, you know, he can't pay Gooch what he's used to getting, but it was a decent salary and he was going to get to learn. And so big step back economically in terms of expertise, especially late in his career. But he did have transferable skills as an engineer and he did have expertise with large scale projects. So it was very steep. And he said, you know, for eight to 10 months, again, he's at the low end of the curve. He was kind of sleepless. He didn't feel like he knew what he was doing. But now it's been, you know, four years in and he's like, you know, I know what I'm doing and I enjoy this group of people. And so this is such a great example to me of how jumping to a new curve does not necessarily, you know, it's not always up, 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 up. It's in fact, the up, up, up is when you think in terms of status, the up, up, up is in terms of learning right. and developing and growing. And for John Gooch, that's exactly what this opportunity provided for him. And it's an inspiration. I, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that you should have maybe two or three careers. And it's an inspiration to see him have one career, try another thing which didn't work out and then have a third career you know it's it's really an inspiration for someone of that age to go and just try something new exactly and i think especially now where you know people are working until they're you know in their 70s and 80s and not necessarily because they have to work although sometimes they do but sometimes they just want to work mm -hmm. and so when you think about it from that standpoint like 50 mid 50s like You've got another 10, 20 years that you could be really productive doing really interesting things. And so that willingness to take a step back and potentially have the luxury of doing that and going after opportunities that are just interesting to you is, is to me, really exciting. Yeah, it's uh, disruptive, to coin a phrase. <laughs> I love that word. So you are a prominent business thinker, and you focused on disruption in your work quite a bit. If you look back, you had a book a, a few years ago on disruption. So my audience is made up of marketers. What advice would you give marketers? And if I have talked to one marketer, I've talked to a thousand who say they want to be disruptive, innovative, and blaze new trails. But, you know, few actually manage to do it. How can they think differently and actually be disruptive? Yeah. So this goes back um, more to the ideas in my prior book, Disrupt Yourself, where um, I talk about how do you know when you're at the top of a curve and then once you decide you're going to do something new, how do you do it successfully? How do you move along that curve quickly and successfully um, and effectively? And uh, there's it's a seven-point framework. And so a couple of ideas and suggestions for marketers is you can, again, this can be from products and become from be for people. So the first step or lever of change is to be willing to take the right kinds of risks. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? Typically, I think as a marketer, and, and I'm going to talk about in the context of an individual, because I think it's valuable here. So as a marketer, you're like, okay, I think I want this job over there. And you realize that there's 20 other people applying for that job. And so you have to figure out, can I compete? And can I get that job? And you might be able to, 
but it's pretty competitive. So you know there's an opportunity, but can you compete and win? And that's the kind of risk that we tend to take on. It's competitive risk. The right kind of risk is market risk. And this goes to this idea of disruption, which is you don't know if there's actually a job for you to do, but you think there's a problem that needs to be solved. And you think that you, with your skill set, can actually solve that problem. And so you set about persuading people that in fact this problem needs to be solved you can solve it if they decide they want to hire someone to solve that problem the odds that you're going to get to be the one that solves it goes way up remember the disruption theory is odds success are six times higher and so that's this idea of taking on market risk if there's a market there's no competition now the reason that we don't tend to take on market risk even though people are like i want to be a disruptor is that market risk implies that you are willing to play where no one else is playing right and playing where no one else is playing means that it's scary You're on the playground by yourself. It's lonely. You're on the playground by yourself. And so you look around, you go, is there really something here? I don't know if there's something here. I I can't tell. And there might not be. But at the the beginning, it feels pretty scary. And with competitive risk, on the other hand, even though it is actually more risky because you've got more competition, you look around and you go, well, there's lots of people here, so there must be something here. And yet that's more risky. And so it's like it's competitive. You're going into battle, and that feels comfortable. And market risk is – it's uncharted waters. You don't know what it's going to look like. And so it feels it's less certain. And so it feels scarier. And so my first piece of advice to marketers would be, be willing to play where no one else is playing and recognize that if you feel a bit scared and lonely, you're on the right path to being a disruptor. That's wonderful. You know, years ago, I worked for a retail company and they did very little market research because they would look at their competitors and say, well, so-and-so is putting a store here, so we'll put a store there. And the really successful retailer is the one that puts a store where there's no store, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's so hard to do, though. Yeah. it's it And, and few, you know, it's the iPhone, right, is, is the example everybody points to that no one knew they needed an iPhone until they saw one or the iPod or, you know, numerous uh, products that Apple has come up with. But the moment you start pointing to that, you're not a disruptor. You're just following in, in their footsteps, right? Right, which is a perfectly acceptable strategy sure. if, if, if you are poised or positioned to be able to compete and win. But that's not where, you know, actually, I'm not going to say but. That is a perfectly acceptable strategy. If you are looking to be a disruptor and if you are looking for, you know, the odds of success being six times higher, the strategy is you are willing to, and again, it's never black and white, but you're willing and looking for ways to play where other people aren't playing, where you say, I don't know if there's a market here, but my gut says, or my research says there's a problem that's not getting solved. And I think I, with my unique and distinctive strengths and my company's unique and distinctive strengths are unusually positioned or uniquely positioned to solve this problem. So let's give it a go. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful, Whitney. I could talk for hours about this. Um, I really want to thank you for joining me here on Confessions of a Marketer. Oh, thank you, Mark, for having me. I really want to thank Whitney for being my guest. All right, we're going on a bit of a hiatus. Enjoy the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, winter in the Southern Hemisphere, and whatever season it is where you will be. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly, T. Jordan of A-Class Productions wrote the theme music. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Reed Edwards Global Inc., and this episode is copyright 2018. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you in September.
you've never tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. But unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.